So again, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do, you can open with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. So Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning, and welcome to week 5 of our miracle series where we are walking through um, the miracles of Jesus. And what we have seen so far just over um, four weeks, four different miracles, what becomes very, very clear is that there's never been anyone like Jesus. Never been anyone like him. And the reason is, is because God never came into the world um, in human form before or after him. So he is it. And we know that Jesus not only came into the world to save us from our sin, he also came into the world to save us from Satan. Save us from the, the power of Satan, the power of sin. He, he came to eliminate our guilt, but he also came to eliminate our enemy. And I think one of the things that we are prone to forget and we must not forget in the midst of all of that is that the devil is real. He is real. And one of his cleverest ploys is to convince or to persuade us that he doesn't exist. And he's so good at that, to persuading even Christians to believe or act or live as if he doesn't exist at all. And we're, we're living in an increasingly modern, scientific, and therefore more skeptical age. And what I mean by that is this. Many, even professing Christians, and please see me when I do that, professing Christians are losing their belief in God and saying they don't believe in the Bible anymore. Um, so when you look at a to-do list of beliefs, endorsing the existence of the prince of darkness is not high on their list um, at all. Yet we must be reminded over and over and over again that the devil is very real. He is the enemy of God and he is the enemy of us. He is the enemy of us. In fact, what does he want from every one of us in this room and every family member that we have? He wants to still kill and destroy. That is what he desires. And he has minions in this world um, that oppose the work of God, that oppose God's people who also deceive and blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them lost. Think about this. According to 1 Peter 5, 8, we have a very real adversary who roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That is Satan. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Those are demons. So just, just think about our enemy and think about his evil angels who themselves are all creations of God. So think about that. Therefore, because they're creations of God, they cannot compare with God, but they do everything they can to oppose God. Just, just think about this. When God created the world in Genesis 1.31, it says that God saw everything that he had made, everything and behold, it was very good. So this doesn't just mean all the things that we can see. It means even the angelic being that he created, God saw and declared that even that was good. So that means that at that time, evil was not yet in the world. But by the time we get to Genesis 3, we find Satan in the form of a servant tempting Eve to sin. So Sometime between the events of Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1, there must have been a rebellion in the angelic world and many angels, including Satan himself, turned against God and became 
evil. So this is what we see. So when it, when it comes to the demonic, many people fall into two errors. Um, some don't want to talk about it at all. So there's some of you here this morning that are going, man, I picked the wrong week to come. Last thing I want to hear about is, is demons. And then there's others who they don't want to talk about anything else um, but demons. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. So we just can't pretend that um, demons aren't real, but we also shouldn't um, attribute every inconvenient circumstance to demons as well. I know people, if they, they get a flat tire, they're pleading the blood of Jesus over their tire, and Satan's attacking them. No, you ran over a nail. I mean, that's basically what happened. Or, or people, you know, your, your car battery dies, so you're, you're pleading the blood of Jesus in his life. No, your battery was three years old. It was time for it to die. Or you spill coffee um, on, on your lap in the drive through line. Don't get out and walk around your car seven times and pray for um, some kind of healing. Or if the price goes up at KFC, it's not Satan against you. It's just the fact that they want to make more money. So some people just live in this world where everything's a spiritual battle and everything's against them. And I'm convinced that there are times where we are, and, and please hear the love in my voice when I say this, we are so dumb that there are times where Satan says, I'd love to take credit for that, but that was all them. <laughs> I'd love to take credit for that, but that was them. I had nothing to do with it. That was just them. Being, I mean, there's times I know Satan goes, I'd love to take credit for what Micah just did, but that was all him. <laughs> that was all him. And the truth that we're going to see this morning is that demons are real, but they are not ultimate. Please hear this. The one true triune God made up of God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. They are ultimate. They are ultimate. In other words, we should not take the devil lightly, but also we should realize that the roaring lion and his minions are all on leashes, and those leashes are held by a divine hand of an omnipotent God. They can't do anything. and We're going to see that even this morning. They can't do anything apart from his permission. So as we consider this morning the nature and the work of demons, um, we are to do so without fear and without fixation. Don't get fixated upon that. Fix your mind on God and on Him alone. So we're going to do um, all of this study this morning through the lens of Jesus Christ, understanding that Jesus defeated demons in His life and He defeated demons in His death. And so therefore we can look to Him. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word this morning. We're going to read Luke 8, beginning at verse 26 through verse 39 together. And when you get there or when you see it on the screen, let me hear you say, yeah. Amen. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. 
He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he, this is meaning Jesus, got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go or be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray together. Father, you have done so much for us. Help us not to miss that. You've done so much for us. And remind us today as we're looking at this, this dark side of the spiritual world and the spiritual war that we are in. Lord, remind us even at the beginning that demons and Satan himself are not ultimate. You are ultimate. They are not God. You are God. They are not in control. You are in control. And they do not get the last word. You get the last word. So God, just remind us of that. Help us to put you in your rightful place so that we may put them in their rightful place. And so we ourselves might, might be put in our rightful place. Lord, speak today, God, we pray, by your word, through your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen, and you may be seated. So this morning we're going to look at this picture of Jesus kind of being behind enemy lines. And what we see in this story is that three worlds meet together. We have the underworld of the evil spirits, we have the visible world of human experience, and then we have the upper world of divine control. And evidently this, this encounter made such a huge impression on the disciples that it found its way into three of the Gospels. We, we find this story in Matthew, Mark, um, and Luke. The disciples never forgot how Jesus liberated a man that was infested with demons. I mean, we think of animals infested with fleas. This, guy, this man was infested with demons. And I think we can all take solace, and I say this kind of... Um, heavily but also clearly, we can all take solace in the thought that it is unlikely that any of us in this room will ever meet Satan in our lifetimes. But nevertheless, he has a, and you might be thinking, why? Because he has bigger fish to fry than us. Um, just, just, just to be clear, um, there, there are way more important people in the world than you and me. So I don't mean to burst your bubble, but just to kind of put it out there. But understand this, we will without a doubt encounter um, demons. We will out, out of doubt encounter those who work under the control and under the sway of Satan himself. 
and they might surround us as even close as our clothes, and they might oppress us, but it is unlikely that you and I will ever encounter the prince of the darkness himself. And the reason I say that is this. Number one, Satan and his demons are not omnipresent. They cannot be in the same place at the same time. This attribute only belongs to God. Satan and his demons are not omniscient. They are not all-knowing. In fact, think of it like this, or just know this. Satan and demons cannot read our minds. They cannot read our minds. But let me tell you what they do. do. They, they, they read our lives. They watch our lives. Therefore, they know what our weaknesses are. They know what we're prone to do. They know what we're prone to say. They are master examiners of watching our lives and seeing that very clearly. But Satan and his demons are creatures. And they are defined by the limits of creatureliness. And in the Bible, as in today's passage, what we just saw, we see demons possessing people. We also see demons oppressing people, causing bodily harm. We see demons bringing all sorts of chaos. And a question that often comes along that I hear a lot is, well, can Christians be demon-possessed? Can Christians be demon-possessed? And, of course, the answer, just a very um, quick answer is no. No, we cannot be. But then the kind of longer answer is this. I do believe that unbelievers without a doubt, can be demon-possessed. I don't think I'm crazy for saying that. The Bible says that, and I believe what the Word of God says. But I do not believe it's possible for a Christian um, to be demon-possessed. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And the Word of God says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. Christ lives in us. So no demon can possess us as Christians, but... Don't miss it. Demons can oppress us, meaning they can push against us. They can harass us. They can uh, um, tempt us. They can attack us. But thanks be to God, he who is in me and in you is greater than he who is in the world. May we understand that beautiful picture. That's amazing news for us. He who is in us is greater than he that's in the world. But then think about this. Theologian um, G.C. Burkhauer said this. He said, there can be no sound theology without sound demonology. Meaning, we can't have a true picture of, of true theology, the study of God, without understanding Satan and, and demons. So this morning, what I want us to do in our time together, I want us to focus on three truths related to, first of all, the power of demons, second of all, the power of Christ, and third, the power of lostness. And we're going to see this morning that... Um, demons and the devil himself are attributed, in, in a sense, to the work of keeping people lost, keeping people blind to the gospel. So the first truth we're going to look at this morning, I want us to see very clearly the destructive power of a legion. See the destructive power of a legion. So this demon-possessed man, story begins, he comes to Jesus. These kinds of people are ones that are given up on they're turned away from, or they're ran away from. But Jesus is not like us. He's not like us. He meets this man who had not just a demon, but demons. For a long time, this man had no clothes. He hung out and lived among the tombs. So he lived in cemeteries. Just think about that. Living in cemeteries. He was kept under guard. He was bound with chains and shackles that he would break 
And Jesus encounters him, and Jesus says, what is your name? And he says, Legion. Just, just understand this. Demonization, it affects the mind, it affects the body, it affects the life, it affects the family, it affects all it comes in contact with. When these demons infested this poor man, they drove him from society, they gave him incredible physical power, and yet they caused him great personal torment. People tried to, to chain him, to chain his hands and his feet, and he would break loose of those chains. They put him under guards, and guards could not restrain him. The demons caused this man to act in increasingly um, bizarre ways where he ended up living in the tombs. He was, he was wild. He was dangerous. He was unclothed. He was tormented. He was isolated. He was violent. No one could help him, and he could not help himself. Humanly speaking, he was a hopeless case. Humanly speaking. And I believe, I believe this is probably one of the, this is the most severe case of demon possession in all of the Bible. It was extreme then, and it's extreme now. It was rare then, and it's rare now, meaning that many demons in a person. This man had in his person the actual presence of thousands of demons. And just think about again what demons want to do. In his book, Angels Elect and Evil, Fred Dickinson writes these words, Since their rebellion with Satan, demons are morally and spiritually unclean. Their total capacities as persons were perverted. Their nature and realm of operation is moral darkness. They are termed unclean spirits or evil spirits. Demons' immorality is often manifest in the sensuousness of those they control or influence. And these demons had greatly influenced and greatly tormented this man. So that when Jesus says, what is your name? This demon said, legion. And why, why do you think he said this? Was that literally his name? And this is where we need to understand legion is not just a name. Legion describes a group of Roman soldiers which numbered as many as, get this, 6,000 men. 6,000 men. So this demon proclaims itself to be legion, meaning thousands within him. This isn't like Mary Magdalene who had seven demons in her. This is thousands of demons. In fact, Mark 5.13 tells us that the herd of pigs that the demons went into numbered 2,000 pigs. So there were at least 2,000 demons um, in, that, in that setting, in that man. One commentator argued against that, saying this. He said, I don't know whether or not there were 6,000 demons. I will tell you why. Because demons lie. They boast and they brag, but they're motivated by pride. And I would agree with that statement if the demons were just talking to humans. But no, but in this picture they were talking to Jesus. And you don't lie to Jesus. When Jesus asks you a question, even the demons themselves must tell the truth. This is the power of Christ. Now, if, if we ever find ourselves under the voice of a demon or in the voice of Satan, they're lying. They are lying to us, but in the presence of Jesus, even they cannot lie. There can be no pride in the presence of Christ. So there's not just a few demons here. There are many, many demons. 
And the question often becomes, what was it about this guy that led to so many demons taking residence in him? What, What did he do that led to all of these demons? And we don't know the answer to that question, but here's what we do know. Unbelievers can open themselves up through habitual and unrepentant sin. There are numerous ways and numerous sins by which unbelievers open themselves up to demonic control, to where their thoughts, their deeds, and their identity become more and more dominated by the demonic. Now, if I sound like I'm talking crazy talk today to you, I I assure you, if if I was preaching this message in Haiti, or India, or Africa, or South America, those brothers and sisters would go, oh yeah, we know. I mean, our first trip to India, we met a demon-possessed guy, we prayed over him, and he shoots back like five feet, lands on the ground, his head hits the the pavement, and the pastors there say, oh, he's demon-possessed, you keep praying for them, we got this. We're like, what? (laughs) I mean, we've never, ever seen anything like this in the world, and this is happening. So they they would get it, very clearly, but there is a picture by which we can, unbelievers can open themselves up to the demonic. The believer, on the other hand, that would be us in this room, cannot be owned, cannot be possessed by Satan, but we can open ourselves up to external influences, meaning that even though we belong to God, we can participate with Satan. In fact, let me say this very clearly. There's not a person in this room if you are a child of God, that cannot be used by Satan. Satan can use you to bring discord in your family. Satan can use you and me to bring discord in the church. We might say, well, I don't believe that. Well, look at Simon Peter. Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. He was a follower of Christ, and yet Jesus recognized your actions right now, Satan, are not, or, or Peter, are not of me. They're of him, so therefore get behind me. I think the, the best way for us to think about this, think about your life and your body like a house. You live in it. Now what happens in your house if you leave all the windows open All the doors open. You invite all the wrong people over. What's going to happen? Now, they're going to move in. They're going to trash the place. They're going to torment you. And they're going to destroy your house. Right? I mean, that is what's going to happen. So think about this. Sin is not just the breaking of a law. Sin is also the opening of a door. Sin is the opening of a door. How many of you tonight would sleep in your house with not only all the windows open, but with all the doors in your house taken off their hinges? Now, maybe a few of you would and say, I'll chance it because the breeze might be good. But most of us would go, "Uh uh-uh, I wouldn't do that. Yet, many of us, if we were to be honest, live that way spiritually. We live that way spiritually. We leave the doors wide open. We leave the windows wide open for Satan and the demonic to work in our lives. As a Christian, brothers and sisters, Satan does not own the house. He doesn't own the house. Jesus owns the house. But we need to make sure Jesus is telling us, keep the windows closed. Keep the doors closed. Keep focus on me. Here's the key. We grant authority to whomever we trust and whomever we desire. 
The devil and demons have no authority over us except the authority we give them by believing them. They have no authority over your life except the authority you give them by believing them. Or put it like this, our best protection against demons is less preoccupation with them and more thinking about God. Think more about Him. God is our best protection from the ravages of the evil enemy. But understand, think about the destructive power of a legion and what it did to a man. And then secondly, look at and understand the delivering power of the Lord. The delivering power of the Lord. In Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus says this, But if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus said, if by the finger of God I cast out demons. And that is astounding. Because all through the Old Testament, when God talks about his power, God speaks about his powerful arm. My powerful arm brings salvation. My powerful arm brings deliverance. Yet when Jesus talks about casting out demons, Jesus basically says, I can conquer the kingdom of hell with my finger. Don't miss that. Jesus is saying, I have the power over hell in my finger. Not just my arm, my finger. None of what we read about here robbed Jesus of any of his power. Not one. So Jesus comes to these demons. And these demons, they come to him and they say, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And then they say, I beg you, do not torment me. Because Jesus had told them, come out. Come out and let's have a meeting together. And then they begged Jesus saying, don't send us to the abyss. Meaning, don't send us to hell right now. Send us to those pigs over there. And it says, Jesus gave them permission. So a few things here. First, first. The demons recognize Jesus for who he is when others do not. Meaning, there's a, a form of study called Christology. It is the study of Jesus. Demons were getting 100%. They know Christology. They know what it is to know Jesus. They know him. They know exactly who he is. In fact, these demons call him by his divine name. You are the son of the most high God. Demons are not atheists. They're not atheists. Demons are smarter than atheists. Um, just to throw that out there. Demons know who Jesus is. But hear this. They just refuse to love him. It's not enough just to know who he is. Jesus has to be loved as God. The demons know who he is, but they will not love him, nor will they surrender to him as God. They fear Jesus, but they will not worship Jesus. Secondly, demons know that they're destined for hell. So understand this. Demons know that there is a conscious, literal, eternal place of punishment and torment called hell. They know that hell is real. And they know that hell has been created, as Jesus said, for them. And unlike so many people, demons actually acknowledge that they're going there. Demons know that they are going there. So why did these demons ask Jesus not to torture them? And here's the answer, because demons know their future reality. 
In Matthew 8, 29, the demons in this story cried out, What have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us, hear this, before the time? So the demons say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Well, what's the time? The time is when Jesus would come in his second coming and punish them forever. So they they know the time is coming. They know that their um, time is near. So they asked Jesus, get this, they asked him, well, send us into the pigs. And I love this. You see it in the very last um, sentence in verse 33. It says, so he gave them permission. Don't miss that. They had to ask Jesus for permission to do anything. These demons said, Jesus, mother, may I? They I mean, just imagine demons saying, hey, can we go to the pigs? And Jesus said, may you go to the pigs? Yes, Jesus, may we go to the pigs? And Jesus said, yes, you may. And so, I mean, just think about this. If Jesus would not have given them permission, they'd have been exactly where he wanted them to be. So why would Jesus allow them to go into the pigs? Why would he grant this request? And I believe there's three different reasons. First of all, it would be proof that these demons had left this man. It's also proof of what demons' intentions always are. They go into the pigs, and what do they immediately do? They kill them. They kill them. They destroy them. That was their, it shows the, what demons desire to do in everything they touch. They want to destroy it. And it also gives an opportunity to get a, a preview of the judgment that is coming. As they um, plunge into the, the sea, they will be plunged into the lake of a fire. But the third thing this does is it gives us proof that Jesus has all authority over demons. What we, what we learn from this story is that demons have authority over sinful man, and Jesus has authority over them all. Demons have authority over sinful people, and Jesus has authority over demons and sinful people and all people. Look at verse 35. Verse 35 says this. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons, don't miss this, and the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. We're talking about the power of Jesus here. And understand this, Jesus changes people. He changes people. That's just what he does. He changes people. Instead of being naked, this man was clothed. Instead of wandering aimlessly, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Instead of being in the tombs, in the realm of the dead, he was sitting among the living. Instead of shrinking and screaming, he was quiet. Instead of deadly and threatening, he was peaceful. Instead of tormented, he was comforted. Instead of insanity, there was soundness. Instead of chaos, there was order. This is a magnificent picture of the power of Christ to transform, get this, anyone. 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 I'm sure the disciples are going, why is Jesus wasting his time on this demon? And sometimes Satan tells us the same thing. Why are we wasting time praying for that person? They'll never be saved. You know what we do sometimes? We stop praying. We stop seeking the Lord. And we, in our minds, say, well, God can't save them. They'll never be saved. This is a magnificent picture 
of the power of Jesus to transform any, any life. He has the power. This miracle, the miracle of this story is not just a personal exorcism. The miracle of this story is the promise of Jesus' ability to defeat and then to reorder the disordered powers that afflict individuals and afflict families in this world. Jesus reorders it all. He has the authority. He has the power to do so. Don't give up on his power. Don't give up on what he can do. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. I'll never forget many, many years ago, I was praying for a, a friend of the family, and she was one that I, one of the most crudest people ever. And God laid her upon my heart to pray, and I was praying daily, 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 daily. And, of course, spending time Thanksgiving, other th times with, with her, it's like, whew, she's just a lost cause. And I'll be honest, I stopped praying. And a couple months went by, a couple more months went by, and get a call that she had given her life to Christ. And I was celebrating, and I was rejoicing, and yet in that moment, God said, why did you give up? Why did you stop? So there was a standpoint where I was rejoicing, but also I was grieving because I stopped. I stopped. Brothers and sisters, don't stop. Don't give up on the power of Christ. Don't give up on what he is able to do. So we see the destructive power of a legion. We see the delivering power of the Lord. And then lastly, number three, we see the damning power of lostness. The damning power of lostness. Look at verse 34. Verse 34 says this, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And then look at verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So they all came to Jesus, fearful, and said, Jesus, would you please leave us? Would you please leave us? What a sad commentary on man's fallenness and unregenerate state that the people within this region, hear this, would feel more at home with demons than they were with Jesus. They were more at home with the presence of demons being among them than they were with the presence of Jesus who has the power to cast out demons. They were filled with fear concerning Jesus. What, think about this. What were they terrified of? Afterwards, hadn't Jesus brought safety where there was danger? Hadn't he brought peace where there was chaos? Hadn't he brought deliverance where there was bondage? Let me just tell you what they were afraid of. They knew in that moment they were in the presence of God. And it scared the life out of them. They knew they were seeing the great power of God. And they knew it was a holy and a purifying power. And loving their evil ways so much, they wanted to get rid of anything that would make them feel bad about themselves. So instead of thanking Jesus for delivering this man and seeking Jesus for their own deliverance, they instead said, Jesus, get out of here. Get out of here. We don't want you here. Even Peter, even Peter in the Gospels, Luke 5, Peter had this reaction when Jesus um, commanded the great catch of fish. And it says that Peter responded in that moment by saying, he fell down and said to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinner. Meaning, 
Jesus, get out of my presence. I can't handle this. It's the intimidation of, of holiness in the presence of sin that causes us to want Jesus to get away from us. But understand the, the bottom line here. The people in this region, they saw Jesus as a greater danger than the legion. They saw him as a greater danger to themselves than the legion. They would rather have a maniac among them than the Son of God. They would rather be terrified by Satan than terrified by God. They would rather tolerate danger than seek deliverance. They would prefer the or they preferred the unholy to the holy. They preferred one who dwelt among the dead as opposed to one who was the Lord of life. And don't miss this. That is the demonic power of lostness. That's what Satan and the demons are doing to lost people all over this world and that they would rather be lost than found. They'd rather be lost than found. In fact, turn with me real quick in your Bibles. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. So turn to 2 Corinthians 4 real quick. And I want you to just hear this and see this in 2 Corinthians 4 and think about this picture of lostness. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and when you get there, it says this, in their case, so speaking of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what does that say? What does that mean? It means that Satan and his demons are keeping people blinded to the beauty of Christ and blinded to their need for the gospel. And how are they doing so? They're convincing them that they need everything else but Jesus. That is what they're convincing them. Don't miss this. Lostness is not just a personal issue. Brothers and sisters, lostness is a demonic issue. It's a demonic issue, which leads, think, I love this freed man's response. When you look back um, in Luke 8 and look at his response, in verse 38 and 39, it says this, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, that he might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Meaning this, let me end this way. The answer isn't always leaving where you are to be where Jesus is. Now for us as children of God, that's coming. One day we're going to leave where we are to be where he is. But sometimes the answer for our lost world is for those of us who have been changed by Jesus, hear this, to go back home. To go back home. That's what Jesus said to him. He said, Jesus, I want to go with you wherever you go. You have 12 disciples. I want to be number 13. I want to be it. And Jesus said, no, I have another plan for you. Go home. Go home. Or let me put it this way, or go wherever Jesus sends you. Go wherever he sends you. Sometimes following Jesus means being sent back to a place where we once knew only desolation or where we once knew indescribable pain. And the thought of returning there conjures up 
fears of old demons and also thoughts of knowing that everyone that we're going back to knew and knows what we were. And know what we were. And what Jesus wants us to know, please hear this, what Jesus wants us to know today is that His salvation and that His protection extends even to those old, horrible places. Meaning that if Jesus can break the death grip of Satan over our lives, setting us free, then he can also redeem those places that once enslaved us and make those places showcases of his glory and grace. As this man went back home, people were saying, wasn't that the guy? Isn't that him? What in the world? And that man just sees a crowd and he stops and says, Jesus did this and he can do it for you too. Don't miss the power. And here's how I'll end this morning. All of us, every single one of us in this room at one time or maybe even now, we're serving the power of the enemy. And we had no power in ourselves over his army. Yet there is a greater power that has opened our eyes and that has set us free. And he can set you free. And we, like this man, can be free indeed. Let me show you one more verse. Throw it on the screen or you can turn there. John 8, 36, the words of Jesus. And it says this, if the Son sets you free, you will be what? Let me say it one more time. If the Son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. And what we read in Luke 8 is there was a man who was once bound and he was not free. And yet he met Jesus and he is free and he is free indeed. And we are free indeed. And this morning, brothers and sisters, you can be free indeed. You can be free indeed. Come to Jesus. Do what he says. And you can be free indeed. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. We're going to call Brother Frank, the musicians, forward as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together. Father, we come before you, God. Lord, we come before you, I pray, as people in this room that are free indeed. Because we come to you, Jesus, on your terms. God, I pray for anyone in this room that hasn't done that. That today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that those blinders of the enemy fall off. And that they see Jesus, they see you for who you are, and they respond rightly to you. Lord, may today be the day of salvation. May today be a day, God, that you take believers and you open our eyes again to the spiritual world and the spiritual war that we are in. Remind us, Lord, what this enemy desires. But also remind us today that you are ultimate God. And we know what you desire. And Jesus, you said that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but that you have come to give life and to give it more abundantly. We thank you, Jesus, for that life. We pray that every person in this room would experience that life, knowing, Jesus, that if you have set us free, we are free indeed. Finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.